It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And I'm George. And this is a budget special edition of the New Statesman podcast. Yes, it is all budget all the time. We've got so much to chew over after yesterday's statement from George Osborne in the House and Labour's response to it. We took some questions as well, but um, there's probably no logical order to do this in. But let's do, actually, let's do it in terms of, of headline grabbing ones first. Should we care about the sugar tax? Is it A, a terrible imposition of the nanny state or B, sensible public health intervention? George, discuss. I think it is largely sensible because if it fails to stop people buying uh, sugary drinks, uh, you've got money raised for investment in school sports. I think it was a smart political act to hypothecate the revenue so it's not just going into the treasury, into a, into a black hole. It's clear what it's going to be spent on. And it's being if, spent on school sports, right? Yes, for prim- at, at primary level. And of course, if it does stop people buying them, uh, there's a question of where the sports funding is going to come from. But the Treasury were yesterday saying that would be a, a good problem to have. And I think actually, in some ways, it, it was quite a significant move um, because Osborne had quite a, a moral section of his speech where he sounded quite emotive and said, you know, I would feel I'd let future generations down if I looked back on my time in Parliament and we did nothing. I quite like the bit about the five-year-old who eats their own body weight in sugar every year. And I mostly just thought about how delicious, like, (laughs) a a pile of sugar. Stephen, as we know, George drinks only green tea and eats only dry Mm. toast. You, I've seen you. Mm. I've seen Goody Bush drinking Coke, full-fat Coke at his desk. Are you are you upset about that extra 8p that's going to be on that can uh, of Coke? No, I'm actually hugely uh, pro this. Uh, I mean, it's something that uh, Andy Burnham was campaigning for as Secretary of State for Health. It's why they, the tabloids briefly branded him the serial killer. It's been the, uh, the central plank of Liz Kendall's entire political career. When she was a special advisor in health, she was one of the people behind the smoking ban, behind all of that public health stuff. And it's something Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott have been campaigning on since Diane Abbott got into... Um, Parliament Labour in don't seem to be getting an enormous amount of credit for it, though. Yeah, I think they, they really ought to have done... I mean, it's always difficult when the other people steal to your show, and he had a very good but clearly pre-prepared stump speech, and responding to the budget is the most difficult thing the leader of the opposition has to do. Um, but obviously, I'm allowed to make it look like it's really easy, so I'm just going to go, well, why did, what he should have done is gone, thank you for adopting our policy, and done a little this. victory lap. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a, you know, yes, it will, uh, be regressive. It will, um, take money from the poor disproportionately, but obesity takes years from the poor disproportionately. So 
I think for me it was one of those things where I find it very odd to see people on the kind of libertarian right suddenly very upset about the idea that poor people can't do things because they've got less money than rich people. Because there are lots of things that poor people can't do. You know, they find it harder to travel, they find it harder to go on holiday, they find it harder to do, you know, to retire early. Like you say, they find it, you know, it's correlated with, with lower life expectancy. And then to sort of suddenly dress up your concern about higher taxes generally in a kind of cloak of suddenly this is the point moment you've discovered that actually it's quite hard to be on a low income i find slightly tasteless um let's move on though because george i was really interested i mean the sugar tax was the kind of it was the rabbit to use our awful unbearable terminology it was the it was the in speech rabbit the pre-speech rabbit was this idea that all schools now uh, in england and wales are going to oh is it wales hang a minute it's just England. It's just Education England. Education is devolved in Wales. Yeah, okay, So, and we already know that Scotland was. So So schools in England, are, both primaries and secondaries, are all going to become academies. Can you talk us through what that means? Yeah, so what it means is that uh, those schools which continue to have uh, local authority supervision, it's not, not com- complete control, um, will become academies, which means that they have autonomy over, for instance, parts of the curriculum, over teachers' pay, over teachers' hours and this obviously is the uh, fulfillment of uh, sort of a long-standing government aim which is to move all schools to that status and the program of course began under Tony Blair and, and Labour as a means of revitalizing um, underperforming inner city schools under Michael Gove it was dramatically accelerated and there is a question mark over whether this is affordable um, and whether this is desirable because um Although there's some academy chains which perform above average, there are others which don't. And it does appear as if this is being driven by ideology and by the desire to secure headlines uh, than by um, policy and evidence. One of the things I find most interesting about it is this: it creates this whole tier of people, these schools commissioners, who are now have an enormous amount of power, but themselves have only oversight from the Secretary of State. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, obviously you're saying this is a revolution, it's putting more power into the hands of parents. But it's quite difficult if you're a parent and you complain to, say, the headmaster or the headmistress of your academy, they complain to the, you know, the, the, the next tier up is probably like the CEO of the chain. The next person up to complain to is now no longer your local council. It is Nikki Morgan and you kind of like I'm imagining that Nikki Morgan's probably not going to spend a lot of her time answering letters from people who are you know upset about some something that's happening in their school and the DFE like almost every uh, central department doesn't have a particularly large staff and its staff has got smaller since 2010 and of the 36 academy chains I think it's 36 it may be more than that now only three of them um, <clears throat> overperform in terms of value added uh, so not just when you have bright kids who continue to you know like and kids from higher income backgrounds who continue to do well but you know when you're actually driving up results uh Aris academy chain arc schools and the diocese of westminster so there's a real question about whether or not there is enough capacity even before you get into the problem which you're entirely right and there is just not an oversight structure but the form of words osborne used was quite interesting. He said, by 2020, they will be moving towards. Well, I mean, Osborne has been moving towards closing the deficit for for six years now. Exactly. I'm moving but, towards my career as a supermodel, but yeah. it's, you know, it's taking a long time to materialise. I think the other thing that's really interesting that we don't, it's very hard to, to talk about is the fact that 
although people yeah, the idea of introducing profit into the schools is kind of one of those trigger words that just instantly kind of freaks people out like the NHS but there are things already that are happening in schools that are introducing profit so for example it is perfectly legitimate for you to set up an academy chain write your own curriculum and sell that curriculum to schools back into your schools and that is what some people are, are doing so there are people making money now out of out of education um, without really kind of anybody having having tweaked that's what's happened mm-hmm. and certainly George I think that this kind of move does make it easier to move towards for-profit schools if you ever decide you want to do that in you know and another government right it does and of course they have them in sweden which was the inspiration for the for the free schools program and there are people in the conservative party who have always argued that philosophically um what george osborne's uh arguing doesn't doesn't make sense unless you allow sort of for for-profit schools and to link it back to the the sugar debate of course academies i think are exempt from rules on nutrition and and, and school lunches and, um, and they do have more unhealthy goods for sale. So there's a there's a, an interesting tension there between the government's intervention on the one hand with with the sugar levy on, on companies, but also on academies, a more libertarian approach where you actually have fewer regulations that schools have to follow. Okay, let's move on because I think there are a couple of things in the budget that were we almost didn't notice, I guess, because of uh, because of everything else that's happened. Um, I saw I read a piece this morning by by Fraser Nelson, the Spectator, saying you know this was a budget that sort of you know people in the Tory shires are going to think is almost socialist you know that this is a, a something that gordon brown could have delivered and i kind of sort of thought is it really early in the morning and i'm on glue or are you on glue and the thing i thought was you know the idea that a, a budget in which corporation tax is cut by eight points is you know to an incredibly low level the you know budget in which i think you were saying this morning george it's the the rise in the threshold for the upper for 40p tax from sort of around 42 to 45,000 a year is the biggest hike since what the 80s yes it is since the 80s yes since nigel lawson introduced the 40p rate so there's he... red meat there's, yes it's, you know, it's not it's not lamby pamby kind of you know oh, new exactly. labor line very redistributive budget but in the opposite direction to labor under gordon brown um and, and teddy blair labor made huge efforts to redistribute large amounts of money from the affluent middle classes and upper classes to uh to the less well off uh, through tax credits and through a more redistributive tax system and they, they often did it by stealth but now osborne's I think Osborne's budget has become steadily more regressive as some of the progressive tax elements that were introduced that they inherited from the last Labour government and that the Lib Dems force and the coalition have been discarded. So capital gains tax now has been cut from 28% back to uh, 20%. Yeah. And you can tell that, I mean, one of the really sort of sinister elements in this budget round is that the government is now abolishing doing a distributional analysis of the impact of its tax and spending measures. So this is the um, idea that they have to publish every time, you know, all yeah. of overall everything, like, and they did, divide it with like quintiles or deciles, yeah. every sort of ten part of, and so you can say, well, actually, the measures in this budget fall most harshly on the richest ten percent, right? Yeah. So they're not going to do that anymore. They're only going to do it in terms of their tax um, decisions because their argument is, oh well, spending, spending doesn't count because. That's implying that spending won't reappear magically in the economy somewhere else. There was an amazing bit on the Today programme interview with Osborne this morning where um, they said, um, well, you've missed, you know, you've missed your deficit target. These are targets you created and you said they were really important and you've missed them. And he said, yes, but I, you know, I was the one who got the OBR to tell everyone that I was wrong. And, you know, and, I'd, and I'd done it. And I was like, I don't think you get credits for having having given us the means to find out that you're wrong. But... I guess in that case, he's definitely given with one hand and taken away with the other. Because those, those distributional impacts have been the thing that have allowed you to go, hang on a minute, this is actually a really great budget for upper middle class and, uh, yeah. you know, and top earners. Um, 
Let's move on slightly to Labour's response because, George, when you were saying that, I was having a, a, a sort of minor conniption because this is one of the things that gets me when I have arguments on Twitter, which I know I should give up for the my benefit of my own blood pressure. It'd be like sugar tax. It'd be the best thing for my blood pressure. But when people sort of say, well, even someone like, like the policies of Liz Kendall, there's no difference between her and the Tories. I just don't feel that even under Liz Kendall led Labour Party that you would have seen a budget like this. And it sort of makes me think that perhaps people have forgotten about what the Tories, you know, what their ideological kind of convictions are and what, and what they what they do in office, that they would think that any Labour chancellor would have stood up and, and given that budget. Yes, absolutely. I think if, if this had been a budget delivered with uh, Liz Kendall as leader, I'd say, and uh, Shadow Chancellor, uh, you would, they would have reversed the big tax cut that's been given to um, on inheritance tax. They would have invested more in universal childcare. They would have invested more in, in tax credits and other benefits for the low paid. They certainly wouldn't have cut 4.4 billion from disability benefits, the personal independence payments, which as I think Yvette Cooper was the first to spot this, this, that is the biggest revenue raiser over the uh, fiscal period. Uh, that's a cut to, to the, to the disabled, which uh, was not promised in the, in the Conservative manifesto. And, and in fact, David Cameron and George Osborne went out of their way to give the impression that they were only going to take benefits from, you know, the work shy, from the unemployed, not from, uh, not from the disabled. Well, that's what annoys me about that, because the personal independence payment is what used to be disability living allowance. And we had a piece by Francis Ryan, who blogged on us for a lot about this, about how many of our Paralympians for 2012 relied on it, relied on DLA, in order to, for example, like have their car adapted so that they could drive to training or, you know, have, you know, some bits of their house adapted. The whole point of personal independence payment, as the name suggests, is that it is for people to be able to do more with their lives, including working than they would otherwise be able to do without any kind of assistance. Mm. And that seems to be, it's it, like you're saying, it's not its not even if you're going to accept that premise that everybody who's claiming disability allowances is just using them to sit around. This is a, a, a benefit that was specifically about getting people more active, more involved in their communities, more able to work, more able to do things. And also, there's the really sinister thing here is, and so sometimes the Tories will do things that uh, I disagree with because I think they're wrong, but there is a at least case. They know on this one that they are completely uh, in the wrong because they tried to do this in reverse two years ago where they tried to say that, oh, if you had a guide dog, not a walking stick, then um, then you were less blind and you therefore needed less money. And then guide dogs for the blind sort of went into full on if you do this, because obviously uh, the great British public is not that fussed about people who claim uh, any form of social security, but is really, Bloody loves really dogs. loves animals. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they would. They said, you know, if you do this, people are going to have to give up their dogs. People have to kill their dogs. And so this is exactly the same policy lever. It's exactly the same revenue raiser, except they've completely changed all of the things they've decided do not make you as disabled. So it has no basis in evidence, no basis in the needs of people. It is just about finding um, $4.4 billion so they can have this ridiculous threshold raise. Uh, for people who are in the top 15% of earners. This is the thing I find really worrying about it, is that trying to find a way to critique that without just sounding like you are oppositional about everything. But I think that the, the dis- what's happened to disability benefit cuts have been really dismaying in the over the last five and a bit years. And the same things with, you know, those massive, massive cuts to council budgets and the direct grant that they get from the government. So much of that went to adult social care. And the problem with cutting that is that it affects a very small, well, relatively small, I mean, this benefit, will, I think, cut will affect 600,000 people, which, you know, isn't nothing, but it isn't the same as tax credits would have, for example. You're affecting a smaller number of people 
in a way that absolutely completely shrinks the horizons of their life in a really unpleasant mm. way. The same thing with adult social care cuts. You know, these are people who just need help to get up and get washed and get dressed, and they're getting much shorter carers' visits as a result. Um, it's also, again, I think, a betrayal of kind of the idea of if you believe in capitalism and markets, because what you're doing essentially is, is creating a whole load of extra unpaid work that has to be done by people, primarily by by women. 75% of people who claim the carer's allowance are women. But, you know, lots of these people who need help, they will, the only people now will be able to do it will be their extended families because they, they can't. And that means another class of people who are trying to juggle that on top of their, their paid work, trying to trying to make the, those sums add up. And I think it's I think that's what's so alarming to me about it is that it's you're by definition the people who are affected by this find it very hard to organize and campaign because they fundamentally find it quite hard to find any spare time or to get out of the house um so i'm 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 kind of i'm kind of angry um george what out of this budget are labor opposing and what have they said mm, you know fair enough we'll let that one go mm. so they oppose the uh, big cuts in corporation tax which is going to fall to a rate of just 17 percent in 2020 um, it's worth noting that's 22 percentage points below the u.s headline rate so this uh, is i got I'm, i mucked this up before didn't i it's the difference in corporation tax rate which has been cut but capital gains tax has been cut even more yes although actually on the other hand they have uh, made some changes to the corporate tax regime on the uh, treatment of profits for instance and, and other areas which i think will mean that overall corporations are actually paying slightly more um, and quite conveniently for Osborne, he's bringing in a lot of these these changes in 2019-20 when he needs to achieve his surplus. And there's this completely incredible, unrealistic, impossible, absurd projected transformation where the country goes from a deficit of around 24 billion to a surplus of 10 billion in, in one year, which uh, just, just isn't going to happen. And of course, that's something Labour opposed. They say, look, forget trying to achieve a budget surplus uh, which looks increasingly impossible. And that's even if we don't have a recession and historic data suggests that the next recession is closer than, than the last one. Borrow for investments, um, as, as John McDonnell has been arguing, and as Rachel Reeves has sensibly, sensibly suggested, a simple accounting change that Osborne made, could make, would be to separate uh, investment spending from day-to-day spending, for instance, on, on public sector salaries, so that the two are clearly separated. You can still say we're running a surplus on day-to-day spending, but on those areas of spending which independent bodies have said uh, will pay dividends in the future, which will increase the long-term growth capacity of, of the economy, uh, we will borrow for those and uh, we'll make that uh, that clear in, in the books. So John McDonnell has given you know his he's been around doing briefings and stuff this morning what's their line on the raising of the 40p rate do we know anything about whether or not they're going to look as if they've, they've accepted it um i think because um presumably they feel that they don't want to get in a position where they're in favor of of, of raising taxes on anyone but the very wealthy now of course i don't um, mean to be rude but sort of at that point what's the point of being an anti-austerity like that was what Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell were elected on. I mean, above anything else that people wanted from them, they wanted them to make those economic arguments, even if they're really unpopular and deemed to be, you know, not, you know, not the kind of thing that wins you elections. But it's I think so strange. I think the difference is, I think the the, the kind of divide divide is slightly too strong, but the the slight difference of emphasis between Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell is that John McDonnell genuinely believes that they have a moment where they can win an uh, election on this on a, a prospectus significantly to the left of something Labour has ever been elected on before. Um, 
but he also thinks, and if you go into an election promising a tax hike, you will be destroyed. Um, Why doesn't he just join the Tories, though, Stephen? I mean, it, it, that is a view. Um, of course, it also partly comes down to an, um, the the big uh, economic project, uh, which you know the, the sort of key guru of is a guy called John Ross, who is currently at the University of Beijing, um, and the Socialist Economic Bulletin, and their big. Uh, Economic idea is an investment in the economy is too low. You need more spending infrastructure, even if you're running a deficit. Even you know that what really matters is you need to get your big transport projects, your big infrastructure. It's one of the reasons why Ross is such a big fan of the Chinese approach to the economy, where obviously they always have these big infrastructure projects pumping um, more output into the economy. That does actually, sound like personal... that's quite. I mean, ironically, given that George Osborne is a big fan of of Chinese investment, yeah. that does sound like that is gifting them quite. Quite a brilliant, you know, we've got a long-term economic plan, the shadow chancellor wants a five-year plan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but the rate of tax is actually not, in terms of what we might call, you might call it Corbynism, but in terms of its intellectual firepower, it's much more accurate to call it McDonaldism. Um, the personal rate of tax is not really, it's marginal. It's something that they can throw away and still keep the big uh, thing that they want, which is this... Uh... But I find that really interesting because that does sort of... I mean, we talked about this before on the podcast, about this kind of emerging dynamic between Corbyn and McDonnell and the fact that, you know, that Jeremy Corbyn is is, is more content to be somebody who is for all the right things against all the, the bad things. John McDonnell does seem to have the scent in his nostrils about, you know, I, I'm there are things that I'm willing to throw overboard in if, if we could possibly have a sniff of power, right? Is at any point that going to become a problem for all the people who felt very idealistic about about Labour in the in the summer, George? I think most of the time it, they get away with it on the Nixon goes to China principle that it was quite notable that some predicted after John McDonnell's speech in which he said promised iron discipline and said we need to run um, a surplus on, on current spending, day-to-day spending. There's nothing progressive and, uh, about a deficit. Yes, all of uh, lines which, uh, as Liz Kendall rightly pointed out, she used during during her leadership campaign, there wasn't a big backlash, partly because he coupled it with saying we will borrow for investment and also I want to transform the economy and, and, and restructure it. Uh, I want to create new forms of public ownership and, and, and community ownership. So that's, that's my priority. Um, so I think when you're perceived to be an R as as left wing as John McDonnell and, and and Jeremy Corbyn are, you can you can actually get away with, with with deploying rhetoric and policies of that kind. Similarly, when Liz Kendall actually proposed some quite left wing policies during her leadership campaign, saying I'd reverse the inheritance tax cut, I'd invest uh, and achieve universal childcare, um, I'd scrap the trade union bill, and actually probably give them greater rights. No one accused her of being too left wing and of abandoning the centre because she had uh, because of her other positions. Um, I want to finish up finally just by talking about the, the tampon tax, which is a sort of personal obsession of mine. Actually, the charity that I chair applied for funds under it and uh, didn't get any, so uh, I should probably declare that interest on it. I think it's I think that's one where uh, on the Today program interview this morning, Osborne was kind of going, "Well, we'll have to wait in a few days to see what the EU might say," which suggests to me that he might have been hoping for a, a, an EU wide ruling. Um, I yeah, I, I'd like to remind people that Gordon Brown was the one who cut it from luxury rate, um, but he was too embarrassed to say the word tampon, and so therefore Dawn Primarolo had to announce it. Weird now to get a situation where you get John Humphreys merrily talking about tampons at ten past eight in the morning with George Osborne. I never really thought I'd live to see that, but I think that there is a if they don't get that EU wide ruling, there is actually a, a small problem, a little mini bump coming up for Osborne on that. 
Because the reason they can't zero rate sanitary products is down to the fact that it's, it would have to be an EU-wide decision. So if Paula Sheriff brings this, uh, you know, into and tries to put an amendment forward to say she's essentially demonstrating that, you know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer does not have control over, you know, fully control over British tax policy in the run-up to an EU referendum. And I wonder whether or not something that seemed like an incredibly insignificant thing could actually become a, a, a potent weapon for for Eurosceptics. Um I mean, theoretically, but the problem is the kind of most of the people who are the face of Europe, of the Leave campaign, with the exception of uh, the incredibly impressive Gisela Stewart, are the kind of people who wouldn't say the word tampon in mixed company or probably even in the privacy of their own homes. I mean, can you imagine Chris Grayling saying the word tampon? Yeah. Uh-huh. It defies imagination, doesn't it? Um, but it is, I think, a dangerous um, moment for the government that they could expose their weakness. Although, to be honest, they probably could zero rate it. Um, unilaterally no i can't work out who would sue them like you know who's going to take them to the european court of justice to insist on the five percent being added on onto there yeah i think i mean i i do think it's one of those things with europe where you probably could just i mean i sort of imagine that lots of you know the italian government sort of sometimes just goes nope not gonna do that and yeah. they kind of get away with it and we could probably just do the same yeah but it does mean instead we're gonna have the slightly weird um kind of classic of the cameron era which is and everyone in europe is like our currency our borders and he's like so there's this small thing that i really could have got in a more subtle way but i'd really like to make a big song and dance of it yeah i mean like he they Let me talk to you about them. menstrual cycle. Yeah, yeah and uh, and I imagine European leaders will look at him very scant. I also think it's very odd if you look at the list of places uh, that the money has gone. Uh, there have been campa- women's campaigners have been complaining. There's no um, sexual violence charities on there. There's there are a lot of interesting schemes being supported, but it's such a patchy postcode lottery. It just seems like such an irritating way to do it to just kind of give. There's an exiting prostitution scheme, for example, in Norfolk. Now I don't pretend i'm um, perhaps listeners in norfolk could write in and tell us but uh, you know i imagine that actually that city centers really busy city centers are a, a, a more of a place where you would you would be able to yeah, do around that. airport so actually is there is there a weird airport in norfolk that everyone always forgets There's, because maybe the, like an raf because like the but, big places in terms of trafficking and uh and drug use are always your like luton the area around the city of london uh stansted etc etc yeah it, it just seemed a little bit odd to me but um i'm sure it's a very worthy project but it just it it, it doesn't mess I'm, I'm not sure it's being allocated on most need per se rather than trying to kind of make it look like a politically an interesting clutch of organizations to pick um finally george which bits of the budget is there a pasty tax waiting in there is something going to unravel in a in a bad way over the next couple of days not that i can see no not in that in apart from with the exception possibly of, of the, the tampon issue you mentioned I think, and that's quite deliberate, actually. So the EU referendum is obviously less than 100 days away. David Cameron made it clear to George Osborne in advance, I don't want any budget nasties. Uh, Of course, at this point in the parliament, chancellors are normally doing quite unpopular things to raise revenue. uh, And then they've got a few years to recover before before a general election. But because of the proximity of the referendum, this in some ways was a a pre-election budget. Although I think the sugar tax is, is quite a in some ways, a, a risky move. It's got uh, attracted some negative headlines. It can be spun as a, as a tax on the poor. So it will be interesting to see where, where that debate goes. But I think the biggest risk for Osborne is undoubtedly uh, missing his targets. Uh, from a point of principle, he does argue that Britain needs to build up a surplus now because there is the real possibility of a, of a crash or recession in, in the near future. Um, but the political cost, I think it, it will be fairly minor because... 
Labour doesn't believe he should have this rule to begin with. He's missed you know, the the fact that he's still Chancellor, having failed to eliminate the deficit as promised um, in 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 2010, shows that actually he can he can be intensely relaxed about missing his targets, and no one there's very little price to pay. Um, it would harm his credibility on the Tory side, though, which does matter in terms of uh, the leadership contest. I think were Osborne to be on track to achieve that surplus at the point uh, he launched his leadership campaign to take over from David Cameron, it would be a strong message he could send to Tory activists, you trust me to get the country back in back into the black. Although, if we're talking 2019, they may say, well, you know, you've been saying this since 2010. How much longer are we going to have to wait? Can we really? Uh, but can in we 20, really trust what is it? In 2019, we're going to be running a 10 billion pound surplus after the previous year having run what is like a 30 yeah. 30 billion pound deficit. Yeah, but I I definitely believe that will happen, George. I I, you know what? I just I somehow I feel it. I don't know where it. But universal credit probably universal credit will probably save all that money. Um, Stephen, is is there any? Is there a landmine ahead? Do you think? I think the personal independence payments are going to be a running sore. I think that they, uh, yes, the number of people they affect is is very small. They're not a significant voting block but there are definitely more than six conservative mps who for whom it hits against their sense of themselves and what they believe the conservative party is about and obviously they only have a majority of 12 um i think also they having esther mcveigh having been seen as the face of so many of them in the last parliament did really hurt her in the Wirral where she lost her seat yeah and i think it does have a kind of electoral halitosis uh for um for for them yeah, among a wider group of people, and my instinct is it will become like the tax credits row. It will it will drain energy. It will make them unpopular, and they will have to U-turn. And I'm not convinced Osborne's leadership ambitions can survive another unforced error and another climb down. Well, on that bombshell, uh, this is the end of our special budget edition of the podcast. Thank you very much to George Eaton and Stephen Bush, and I'm Helen Lewis. <laughs> I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And welcome to You Asked Us, the part of the podcast where we take questions from all of you. Although I would point out that we have had a bumper, essentially, that whole part of the budget when was You Ask Us. So um, if, if we answered your question, you know, that's good. If we didn't, then you can always still tweet us at, at Stephen KB and at Helen Lewis. But tell us, what was the, what's the one question that we haven't uh, got to yet? Can local elections survive the amount of devo- local authorities survive the amount of devolution they are being subjected to? I think it's a really interesting question because it is one of the Osborne's favourite things that he will kind of go Devo Mank, you know, uh, in when he wants to try and um, distract from other stuff. There was some really interesting stuff about like the, having a mayor of East Anglia, mm. although I thought he almost said East Anglia in a sort of tribute to Jade from um, Big Brother. But uh, uh, the thing about Peace that, be upon her. yeah, I, the thing I didn't really understand about that is that some of the places with elected mayors it's worked out really well and they love them but most of the places did reject them when they were offered the chance and you know in fact uh, I'm going to say I can't remember the oh the places that elected Hangus the monkey their, their football mascot uh, Hartlepool Hartlepool three times so I think that was a fairly kind of comprehensive rejection of, of the idea there I mean I think the, the problem so the advantage with elected mayors is that they they are on the whole better for cities. They you know they they're a lot you know one because you have a figure who can go around winning investment. 
the difficulty is whether or not you have a demos for the the area in particular. So the it, I think it works very well in Manchester because people think of themselves as being from yeah, Manchester. Or, or in London, it, it feels like a unit of of, yeah. of governance that is a, an obvious size, and actually having some coherence of that makes sense. You know, if you Manchester, you want a, a Manchester-wide tram policy. You know, you want an integrated transport policy that works across that whole urban area. Because the the difficulty is sometimes devolution that makes sense economically doesn't really fit where people are socially so what would be the number one thing which would improve the economic prospects of people living in the north Wales, north of wales a direct link between chester and, and the north however for a lot of people in the north of wales and indeed a lot of people in chester they feel it's a fairly hard border and it, trying to persuade people that actually some shared devolution there would work is kind of like um getting getting blood from a stone well, particularly when you've got a devolved authority already to wales so yeah. the schools and things like that and, and healthcare are already devolved in a different direction you do end up with a kind of weird patchwork yeah. the problem is for me that the devolution i think is also it's a facet of the way that perhaps charities are used and i talked about this at christmas that what you do is you offload your local authority services to tender process with charities then when it's not enough money to do the service properly you go these people are all rubbish at providing the service let's find another one and it's not your fault and mm. i'm worry that a lot of this devolution is a way of devolving things hard decisions to local councils and then saying it's not our fault so there was all this talk about business rates yesterday and supposedly that was going to be something that was being partially handed over to a lot of local authorities but now actually it's been turned out that they there's been a unilateral cut from central government yeah i mean it, it's in 2009 one conservative uh, said to polytomer i think we will devolve the axe and that has always been a large chunk of their plan to pass down responsible for implementing the cuts onto councils who now legally have to have balanced budgets and exactly as you as you said in your column, uh, to pass the blame onto these these outsourcers and to these groups. However, I think local government will survive for the same reason that the government will survive, and people will you know people are are resilient. It will be catastrophic for many people, but the institutions will in, will endure. Well, that's our slightly bleak answer. It will survive, but in a slightly impoverished and strange jigsaw patterned shape. So, thank you for asking. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork, and our music is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.